0: Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have been studying the small New Testament book of 2 Timothy, and today we have lesson number seven, which Doug has titled, The Athlete, the Farmer, and the Savior. This lesson is taken directly from 2 Timothy, chapter two, verses five to ten. Here, We are learning of several more illustrations of spiritual perseverance and what is required to achieve that goal. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning in the LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We begin our teaching at 9.15 a.m. every Sunday morning, following a short time of fellowship together. We enjoy and are blessed with the number of visitors to our class every week, and we invite you to come if you're in the area. Well, I see that Doug is at the podium, ready to begin the lesson. Be sure to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we begin today's lesson. Here now is our longtime teacher and my great friend, Doug Brady. Who can tell me who's
1: in that picture, Steve?
0: I would guess two out of three is going to be Paul.
1: Yes, Paul and Timothy, and who else? Nope. Do you notice the chain? Oh
0: yeah, Roman soldier.
1: That is a not just a Roman soldier. That is a Praetorian guard, one of the elite that he was placed in there. Now. Number two, do you know what Timothy is doing? Ah, very good. He's not just writing, he's transcribing. Transcribing what? What Paul is is dictating to him. Paul had a problem, and some people think his eyesight was failing him. Now, what's the location at which they're at? They're in Rome. He is under arrest. He's in house arrest the first time he was in Rome. The second time he was in a dungeon type situation. That's why only one letter came out. Right? But this is with this Roman Praetorian Guards, and they were. Now, look very carefully at that and tell me can you see anything interesting other than what we just talked about? Bob? Roman listening. He is listening. And you know what, Paul writes, you know what, it's good to be in house arrest because there are praetorian guards throughout that unit who have now become believers. And you see the look that he's, he's watching Timothy here, seeing how Timothy is responding to what Paul is saying. And uh, I wish Mark were here because that's something he loves that picture. And he probably has some insights to it that I don't have. But I want you to think about that as we go along. And it's going to be important because when we look at some passages that he and some ideas that he's sending to Timothy, does Timothy know what's in some of these other books? Absolutely, because he was writing them. How many, do you remember how many he wrote in Rome in the first visit to Rome? Do you remember how many? There's a the thing on the first missionary journey, he wrote one. Second missionary journey, he wrote two. Third missionary journey, he wrote three. When in prison in Rome the first time, four. When he came out, two. And then when he went back into the dungeon, one. And you just remember that. One, two, three, four, two, one. And you got it. And we know that Timothy went on a lot of these missionary journeys. Did he go on the first one with Paul? Not really, because he was saved during the first one. But after that. Now... As we've been going along in chapter 2, we've seen, in fact, last week, we saw that God's power comes through what? Grace. In fact, grace and power, in Paul's vernacular, are basically equal. Now, you know, we never would have thought that. You just don't, grace, that's not power. That's style, panache, flair, maybe, but not power. We also learn that God wants a generational plan for passing on the gospel message and the gospel treasure that the Lord has entrusted us with, and that Paul is going to now and has started giving intimidated Timothy some pictures of how the believer is supposed to be, the believer that spiritually perseveres, the believer that is going to be strong to the end. Look at these. Now, we looked at one last week. Does anybody remember what picture, illustration, or example that was? The soldier, no soldier, enlisted in active duty. How does the rest of it go, Steve? 2 Timothy 2, 4. No soldier in active service. It entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. But instead, to, in order to please the one who enlisted him, As a soldier, that was the concept that we saw, and we talked about that a lot. Today, we're going to see two more illustrations like that, and then one example that we're going to see. But before we go any farther, let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for the time that we could be here, and I pray that you will help us to understand the things that you want us to see. I pray that you will burn into our hearts the principles you have in these lessons. Help us to see ourselves as a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The first illustration he's going to give is that of an athlete. And as I thought through, do I really know a world-class athlete? I mean someone who is at the top level so that I could provide some information about so we could see how it applies. And as I thought through, I realized, yes, I do. Let me show you a picture of him. His name is Jim Montgomery. Jim Montgomery is a swimmer, not just any swimmer. In the 1976 Montreal Olympics, Jim Montgomery was the first one to break the 50-second barrier in the down 100 yard, Down once and back once. So you have a dive, you have one turn, and you're back. This guy was amazing. I got to swim on his swim team called the Lone Star Masters for a while. He won three gold medals at that Olympics. Uh, Breaking the 50-second barrier is kind of on the same level as breaking about a four-minute mile I got a chance to meet Jim and I got a chance to talk to him and I said when did you start really training for those Olympics and he said well when I got out of high school he went to the University of Indiana and that's where he swam competitively until the Olympics and I wanted to know I said tell me about your training regimen now I want you to imagine a college-age person who's planning to swim in the Olympics, he said, my diet was extremely strict. No junk food. Couldn't go to golfs. Couldn't go to McDonald's. (laughs) No junk food. No sugar. Plenty of protein, fruits and vegetables. Very little carbs until the night before a big meet. And then he would carb up. That was... Now think about this. Four years of eating like that. Four years of no candy. Four years of no soda. That's the price he's paying. But it wasn't only that. He said he had a very regimented sleep schedule. You would go to bed every night at the same time. You would wake up, you know, if your girlfriend said, well, let's just, no, can't. I got to be in bed at nine. Wake up at the same time you got to wake up early because you have early morning workouts. He was working out three different times a day for four years. Uh, That workout involved swimming and other cardiovascular exercise. It involved working on weights. Uh, it, It involved practicing turns and dives and other starts and rehearsing mechanics. He showed me once. He said, Doug, most people when they swim freestyle, they just swim like this, you know. That's not the way to do it. If you stretch out and then bring your arm and don't just pull with your hand, but you pull with your forearm too, right next to your body and then push down, it lifts the body up and so it can go faster and there's less drag. That's how you set world records, he said. He, it was amazing in how he did things and he paid that price for three gold medals but now again, I mean, think about it. you got three gold medals. Those are gold. And that's got value, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But look at 2 Timothy 2.5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, the word translated athlete is a translation of the Greek word athleo. You can see that we get our word athlete from that word, athleo. Now, athleo in the Greek has two meanings. The first meaning is someone who competes in the games, someone who competes for a prize or to engage in a contest. But it can also mean to endure and suffer. And I asked you, was it worth it? He said, you know, the older I get, the less worth it, it seemed to me. Now, when I was standing up on that podium, the fastest man in the world, that was pretty cool. And they played my country's national anthem. I, I really thought that was great. But as time goes on, you know, people are gonna beat that 50 seconds, that under 50 second time. I also ask him about this. You see, you can have a person who does all of that kind of preparation and they get on those blocks to start that meet and they're gonna dive in and you're trying to dive as soon as that gun hits, maybe sometimes anticipating it a little bit. And if you false start, everybody stops, everybody gets back on the blocks. But you false start a second time, you're disqualified. Yeah, you mean the four years I spent? No, that's gone. You wasted it because you didn't follow the rules. You can't leave the blocks Until the gun sounds. And we need to understand that think about, and some of you may disagree with this, but I I feel very strongly about this. Think about the disgrace that came to our nation and our state because of a man named Lance Armstrong, who, yes, he beat the world because he was doping. And then he tried to hide it and lie about it and cause people's lives to have grief who would speak out the truth. You gotta play according to the rules. And the rules for us is the instructions God gives us. You know, Jesus told his disciples, obedience to our Lord was an indication of our love for him. Then did he know obedience was hard? Yeah, but he said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit who will empower you and give you the grace to obey. So it's just a choice that you have to make. Now not only in Second Timothy two five did he paint this picture, but he painted this picture for Timothy again in a little different shades and maybe in a little more detail in first Corinthians chapter nine verse twenty five, which says this everyone who competes in the games exercises self control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified. He doesn't want to be disqualified. Did Timothy know about 1 Corinthians? Of course he did. He was there in Corinth with Paul. Now, it's also interesting... I found this verse that I think tells... Some people might say, I'm not sure Timothy wrote all those books for Paul. Look at one of the ones he wrote from that, which was the book of Philemon, that he wrote while he was in prison. At the end, it says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. In other words, so you can recognize it, Philemon. I will repay it, that is for the slave, not to mention to you you, what you owe to me, even your own self as well. What is he saying? I'm writing this with my own hand. Well, what does that indicate? That's not normal. But he says, I'm doing this so you recognize, so you don't think that this is something that Onesimus dreamed up, who was the slave, the runaway slave that Paul was sending back to him because he'd become a believer. And that's, I think, proof of what's going on here. Now, what is Paul trying to communicate with both the Second Timothy 2.5 Timothy 2, passage and this 1 Corinthians, what is it that stands out clearly? I think it has to do with self-control or self-discipline. You remember back in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but God has given us the spirit of power and of love and of discipline or self-control. We need a similar regimen For getting into spiritual shape. And Paul indicates, Timothy, they do it for a perishable crown, but we're doing this for the Lord. Look what he's given to us. We should give back to him. I want you to look at this passage about competition, that it shows Jesus as a competitor. We've looked at it before. It's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran the race before us, is what Paul is saying. We need to run the same way. Who should be our example? Jesus should be our example, according to the writer of Hebrews. And I want you to see that. Now, does Paul understand the demands of this kind of competition? Yes, he does. And he knows that it is extremely hard to meet the requirements of the self-control or self-discipline. But he says there's something you need to understand. The writer of Hebrews understood it too. The writer of Hebrews put it in verse 3 of Hebrews. Notice this again. We've talked about this before. In Paul's day, they referred to quitting as losing heart. If you're going to quit, that means you've lost heart. And in verse 3, it says, therefore, well, I want to read just verse 3. There it is. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. Jesus endured. You think of the hostility he endured. Now, why did he do that? Well, there are a number of reasons, but the writer of Hebrews focuses it on one reason. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, wait a second. You mean as we're trying to discipline ourselves, God can make it so that we don't grow weary or lose heart? Is that Something that happens that really works? Yes, is the answer. In fact, our pastor gave us a passage last Sunday. Let's look at it again. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? Well, of course, God doesn't become weary or tired. We're not talking about Him. We're talking about us, right? Well, His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. Now, what is He saying here? He doesn't. It's not saying, "Oh, I require you to develop strength." Is that what He's saying? No. He gives it. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait upon the Lord, that is, who belong to him, will gain new strength. Now notice, this is not, I'm going to, you know, everybody has a certain amount of strength or energy that we call endurance. Cindy, do you know how far you could really run today if you had to? You see, Cindy used to be a collegiate runner. As long as you needed to, huh? Well, if you saw how she works out all the time, you'd understand she could probably do that. But the fact is, eventually, you run out of steam. You have so much in you, and then you run out. But what he's saying, I'm not going to give you back what you had. I'm going to add to what you have. That now your capacity is increased from what you had. You know, you recover, and you have the same basic amount of strength again. get. No, he's saying, I'm going to add to it so that you have even more. That's the concept here. I'm giving you additional strength, new strength that I want you to see. Yet those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, is it difficult not to lose heart or grow weary? Yes, but Jesus knew that, and that's one of the reasons he died for us, so that we could have that kind of strength. Now, there's something else I want you to see that I think is important for us to come to grips with as we go through this. Did you remember in this passage, it talks about in first, let's look at uh, that 1 Corinthians 9 again. They do it. To receive a perishable wreath. But we. An imperishable. A perishable wreath. Well yeah they got these things woven. It's different now. These are the silver, gold and bronze medals. From the. uh, Winter Olympics in 2022. You notice. There's a gold one right in the middle. Winning a gold medal like Jim Montgomery did. I mean that has some value doesn't it? No. It does not. Did you know how much of that metal of that metal is gold? Seven and a half percent.
0: No. Yeah, but the rest is made
1: of silver. They're just, they're Actually, it's not silver in the gold medal. It's a lesser valued metal. That silver metal is not pure silver. It's silver plated. But seven and a half percent of that gold medal is gold. You you begin to see what the world gives you as a reward. You thought you had a gold medal. Yeah, just on the surface. But that's the way the the world works. God's not like that. He promises, I have things I am going to reward you with. And in fact, the one who pleases me, who is the one who believes that I really exist and that I am a rewarder of those who seek him. If you believe you're a rewarder, he's a rewarder, that means... If you follow his commands, you're going to be rewarded. And the answer is yes, you are. One of the things it talks about is the clothing that you will receive up in heaven to wear, which is basically pictured on the righteousness of the saints. There was a time in my life, and maybe Chris will admit in his life, when we wouldn't have been too well dressed uh, if we had gone up then. Things have changed now, hopefully. You see, it it really helped me to marry a godly woman. But uh, the fact is, there are crowns that he also is going to give. Now, I know some of you say, thinking, yeah, okay, there's gonna be crowns, but I don't have a chance of getting any one of those. You know what one of the crowns you can get for? Is those who wait for and love his appearing. All you gotta do is be focused on Jesus coming back and thinking about that and praying for that to happen. And you're going to get a crown. Oh, you can get it. Who can't do that? It's only will you? Now, let's go on. Let's leave the athlete. Righteous acts will be the clothing that will be awarded, white clothing that you will wear on your return. And it's the robes worn by the bride in the return at the second coming. You know, in the second coming, we will all be on white horses. Even if you don't know how to ride, it doesn't make any difference. You will then, and you will be coming back. If I had a picture of that, I could show you me in the picture, but there will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ, but those that pass the fiery test will be awarded there so that there's going to be a crown for soul winning. There's going to be a crown for shepherding. Now, I want you to think about that just a second, shepherding. Some people think, well, that just means being a pastor. No. Have you ever seen a mother who has to shepherd two or three? I was, went in the store the other day, and this poor woman had three girls. And all they did was, well, mommy, can we have this? Or, mommy, what about this? Well, why, mom? Mommy, what about, you know, and then and then the crying should start. I felt so sorry for that poor woman. I went over and picked up one of the little girls who was crying and said, come on, listen. And I got her to stop crying. But the fact is, we need to understand those things. And we need to see that those, those crowns, and there's five of them, Greg. And if you just get on Google and you put in the five crowns given to the believer, I think you'll be able to pull it up. But let's go on to verse 6. The hard-working farmer ought to be first to receive a share of the crops. Now, when I first read that, I thought, now, come on. A farmer. We're talking about a farmer? Now, we've talked about a soldier, and I can understand that. And that's someone who perseveres under suffering. And we talk about an athlete. That's someone who perseveres under suffering. A farmer? Of course, if... Uh, if Kim were here, he would immediately be speaking out and telling us about farming. But let's let's look at the words first. The word farmer is the Greek word georgos, and georgos means a tiller of the soil. That's probably a better translation than husbandman. But it also has this word kapiao, and kapiao means to be hardworking, to Grow weary, tired, and exhausted from what you are doing. That is the life of a farmer. Exhaustion. And he labors constantly. And then it uses this little word, D, meaning, we translate it here, ought, which is, it is necessary to the nature of things to be the case. In other words, the hardworking farmer should receive... A share of the crops. Now, one of the most interesting things I found here in the scripture when it comes to Greek and Greek translations is this. The word translated receive there has two meanings. It can mean to be in kind of in partnership with or joint venture together. It can also mean to partake of something. And so you see, Receive his share of the crops. Receive and share is exactly the same word. Metal and mono, but it's used to two different meanings in that setting. It's saying the farmer should be in a position where he has an ownership right to some of the crop that is coming out. But it also is he should be partaking or sharing of the crops. And so medelumbano is this word. Now, this is not the only time Paul uses this picture of the hardworking farmer in the scriptures. And there's several other things that I think we can learn. But you have to look at the faith of the farmer for just a second. When he harvests his fields and he harvests the crop, he has to take some of that crop and set it aside. Why? Yeah, there won't be anything to plant next year if he doesn't. So he sets it aside, some percentage of the crop. Some people say normal is about 20%. I don't know for sure. I've never been a farmer. There's some people, some person in this room who would like me to become one, I think, but uh, I'm not a farmer. And, but he holds back the crop. Then comes springtime, planting time, and he plants the seeds. Well, springtime in some parts of the world. Uh, I think it's fall in other parts of the world. But he plants the seeds and he tends the crop. He, he keeps it free of weeds. He eliminates the vermin. He keeps the animals away who would want to eat it. He fertilizes the field. Now, in Paul's time, they were, farmers were absolutely dependent on the rain. They didn't have any really any other way to water their crops effectively, but by rain. If the rain doesn't come, the crop very well may be lost. And his family go hungry. If it comes in too great a quantity, or as hail, the crop will be damaged. If it came all at once, the crop may be lost. Because it's all at once and then not anymore. If the winds are too hot or ever-present, the moisture will be sucked out of the soil and the crop won't have enough water to survive. Now, I want you to consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He's talking about, I planted Apollos' water, but God was causing the growth. Now, I want you to think about this. What is he saying? Who planted the church there in Corinth? who won those people to the Lord there in Corinth to start with, Paul. But he didn't, couldn't stay there and he had to move on. And then a, a teacher by the name of Apollos came and he started building up the church. But what did Paul say? Did he build the church? Did Apollos build the church? Did they together build the church? The answer is no. God caused the growth. And this is something very, very important. In Matthew, when Jesus is talking about this and he says, who do you say that I am? And they said, and Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, yes, upon this rock, meaning the statement, the foundational statement that Paul just made, I will build my church. I want you to think about that a second. If he says I will build my church, does the church exist at that time? Somebody want to say oh, church Israel, they're the same. That's wrong. Someone is seriously confused on biblical doctrine if you hear them say the church is Israel and Israel is the church. And you probably don't want to listen to them because if they get that key part wrong, probably a lot of other things that they're wrong on also. Does the church inherit from Israel Israel's promises? No. Now, general promises made to all believers is different. I'm talking about the promises made. Does the church have a right to a large piece of real estate over in the Middle East? No, it doesn't. Did the church, was the church responsible for blessing the world with the Messiah? No, Israel was, not the church. Those things don't come on. Will there, are there still promises that are due and owing to Israel? Will those be provided to Israel, those promises fulfilled? In a final seven year period of the Israeli or the Jewish dispensation. Now, he's going to build the church, and the church didn't start till when? Pentecost. When the gift of the Holy Spirit came. And we need to understand that. We are though compared as farmers helping to grow God's church. We perform the tasks he instructs, but the results are up to him. Does he expect us to be hardworking though? Does he expect us not to give up on the crop? Yes, he does. Look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. This is the first book that Paul wrote on his first missionary journey. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows in the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Don't give up. For in due time we will reap If we do not grow weary. Do you see the same repetition over and over of what he's saying? You've got to finish strong. You've got to persevere. You need to endure here. That's what Paul is saying. Now, when we plant, what are we going to get? What we plant. Real simple. What you plant is what you're going to get. You know, I always thought this week, I was thinking about this. Who planted poison ivy? (laughs) I hate poison ivy. I can almost walk by it and get it. Who I, And I had to conclude that, that was as a result of the curse. Or else somebody was just cursing me, one or the other. But a farmer has to have the faith that his seed will grow and produce. I mean, would a farmer do all that work if he didn't think he was going to get a crop? That'd be stupid to do that. But that's... What the faith comes down to. Now, you come to that, what does the farmer have to recognize? So much is out of his hands and it belongs to God. Now, modern farmers say maybe don't think that, but they're wrong. God's going to be the one who's going to give them a crop or not. When it comes to spiritual matters, what's our job? Success? No. Faith. He brings success. That's his job. You say, well, I failed, I didn't, I wasn't successful. No, you didn't. If you were faithful, you were successful in God's eyes. That's all he's asking of you, faithfulness. Hard work, but faithfulness. Now, but let's look at verse seven before we finish. Verse seven, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, that's a verse that is, he's stopping See, he's talked about grace's power. He's talked about that I'm instructing you, commanding you to become a teacher and to teach and pass on from generation to generation the treasure that I'm giving you here in, this, in the scriptures. Uh, you can consider yourself to be like a soldier, consider yourself to be like an athlete, an athlete and or uh, as a farmer, a hard toiling farmer or all three really mixed together. And I want you to consider what I'm saying here. And so this verse is looking back on the first part here of chapter 2. This word translated consider is noeo. And noeo means to perceive with the mind or to ponder, to grasp the meaning of. You think things through. You know, it's interesting in my home. Uh, Julie and I will talk about something, and then maybe the next day or two days later, she'll say, do you remember, we... I'm thinking, and it's clearly that she's been pondering on that, thinking it through, maybe asking some other people what they think, and she has maybe modified her thinking or expanded her understanding of something, and she wants to share it with me, and so that is something that is important to do. Now, I came to a conclusion this week, I think sometimes women have a higher ability to ponder over something than men do. Now, you know, men, we got to get going, you know. We don't have time to sit around just thinking, and I can see agreement coming in. Do you know, I thought of thinking, well, is there any biblical support about it? Where where does it ever talk about somebody pondering over something? Oh, Luke. Luke chapter 2. Verse 19, let's see what it says. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. All the things that the angel had told her, she treasured those and pondered them in her heart as she was preparing to give birth to the Messiah. Pondering, seeking to understand. It's almost like you take a rag or a towel that's wet, a hand towel, and you start to wring it, and water comes out. But then you grab a hold again and make it tighter, and more water comes out. And pretty soon you've maybe squeezed all the water out of that towel that you can squeeze. That's the concept of pondering, getting all the meaning out of something that is in there. You want to get it all out. And we need to come to see this. So, the next verse, we're going to wait on, on verses 8 and through 10. And I want to go to the final concepts. What has God, through Paul and Timothy, told us that if we're going to be strong, if we are going to be finishing strong, spiritual survivalists, the four things. Number one is a teacher. What are the key points of being a teacher? I see basically two faithful study and preparation. If you're not studying, you know, it's kind of like in the profession of law. I had a lawyer one time. He told me, how are you gonna, when I get there, I know how to talk and I'm going to persuade those jurors. I'm gonna persuade, he said, Doug, you're messed up. Let me tell you, it's 90% preparation, 10% presentation. Now, if you focus on just presentation, you will lose. And he was right. The same way with teaching, it's about preparation. If you study and prepare, then you can share. If you don't, you won't. Another aspect of teaching preparation is this. A really good teacher once told me, Doug, you need to spend as much time praying over your lesson as you do studying on it. Then... You will see real effects. And so preparation is key to teaching. The end is to be reproductive. Reproductive. Does the really effective teacher just teach the people? No, no. He, he teaches so that those people can pass on what he's taught to them. And maybe even those people, you remember in Paul, it was four generations from Paul to Timothy to trustful men to others. So that's what he's saying about a teacher. And we're going to go back and look at each of these examples each week till we finish chapter two and review these. Won't spend as much time on them. Number two, besides being a teacher, it's being a soldier. What are we to live like being a soldier? We're to perform our assignments wholeheartedly. The soldier has to be committed. Remember, said, don't be entangled with the affairs of everyday life. You got to be focused on one thing. You being a warrior. Everything is aimed at being a warrior. Perform those assignments wholeheartedly. Number two, unquestionably loyal to our commander. You know, in Paul's day, it was a little different. That's the way they talked. In our day... What do we say? No, I'm unquestionably loyal to my country. Not then. And what is it really for us? Unquestionably loyal to our commander, Yahweh Sabaoth, the leader of the armies of Israel, the armies of God. And one day you will be in that army and you will return when we take out Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all of those people who are following with him in the battle of Armageddon. We're gonna be part of the army. Now, I'm a little bit disappointed that I won't be able to do any of the fighting. Jesus gets to do all the fighting. He's gonna have all the fun. But be that as it may, I'm still coming back with him on a white horse. Now, the third thing about a soldier is he never deserts a real soldier would never even consider deserting that's something he's trying to impress upon timothy timothy you can't quit you can't desert the cause you are important to the next generation we are important to the next generation if we don't build godly principles into our children and our grandchildren where is this nation going who was the lady, Julie, we heard in DU just recently? Michelle Bachman? She explained some things to us. She said, this church that you are in is unique. We should never think that our church is just like all the other churches. We are unique in our commitment and our godliness. Now, well, some of say, well, we're not as godly as we, are. absolutely, that's probably true. But comparatively, And all that does is says our nation is in trouble and we have got to do something. And you say, well, we can do something maybe about our people here, but we can't do anything about those other people, everyone else. Yes, we can. And what's it called, Eddie? Prayer. Committed, earnest prayer of a righteous man or woman. That's what changes things. That's what brings revival. So, that's what it means to be a soldier. To be a perform like a world-class athlete, we must follow the rules. That is obedience, not just obedience, radical obedience, radical obedience. When, Bob, when you were trained to be a Marine, when you were issued an order, were you trained to, I need to sit down and consider this order to see whether this is something I really want to do? Did you get that? You react immediately. It's not something you question, something you put conditions on. It's you obey. Also, the world-class athlete exhibits the discipline or self-control that we have to have. Now, let me ask you this. How is self-control obtained? Holy Spirit? Now, the Holy Spirit, you mean he just gives you self-control? Well, we know He gives us the fruit of the Spirit, right? I mean, that's what the definition of the fruit is. Is self-control involved in the fruit of the Spirit? In fact, it runs the anchor, doesn't it? It's the last one there. Self-control. He wants to give it to you. You know, we say, how many times have I heard, I I just don't have very good self-control. Why? You haven't asked for it. What does it say in 2 Timothy 1, 7? I'm giving you the spirit of self control or discipline, self discipline. We can have it. You know why you don't have it and why I don't have it? Because I don't want it that badly. I'd rather not have it. I'd rather eat junk food, go to bed at different times, and not work out like that. (laughs) The gold medal's not worth it anyway. But, But see, mine's not a gold medal, mine's a crown. Minds of garments of the righteous. Those are worth it. You know, I think one of the things we're going to have to realize when we get to heaven, there's going to be some regret. Not maybe for very long, but during that judgment. Why did I do that? And why did I not do that? But that's what the the world-class athlete faces, and we need to see that. And then finally, before we finish, the farmer. If we are to model a farmer, we must toil energetically. You can't, you got to keep working. Yeah, but you know, I'd really like to take a nap. No, you got to keep working. You got to toil and recognize the importance of what you're doing. You know, think about it from this perspective. If we were on a, a boat, Julie and I, and a rogue wave came and washed her overboard. And I grabbed the life for those tubes uh, you know, around the, with the rope and threw it in. And she grabbed it. And so I am pulling her back up. Halfway, you know, I'm kind of tired. I think I'll, t- no, you don't do that. You don't rest till you got her back in the boat. You keep pulling. <laughs> well, when I'm pulling her up the side, I don't want her kicking. I want her to, uh, But as we, you see, you can't give up. You can't quit in the middle of that. There'll be time for the other. And you have to trust God to provide the harvest. You know, it's interesting. As Jesus was taking his disciples uh, through Samaria one time, he met a woman at a well. And the disciples had gone on, and he shared with her, and he led her to a belief in him. Disciples came back, and they started questioning him, and he started talking about a harvest. Did he tell the disciples, you should pray for the harvest, that the harvest will be plentiful? No, he didn't pray that the harvest would be plentiful. He prayed, give me more workers to bring in the harvest. So it would be plentiful. Now, technically, you could say yes. It's, that's because, pray the Lord to send more laborers. We need more people because the fields are ripe. I'm telling you, the fields are ripe in our nation right now. That's why we got to be praying for a revival. That's why we got to be praying that God will raise up evangelists and prophets and intercessors. That's what we need to do. Because we need to understand we are farmers now does that mean you always get to see the crop come in no, no. but you have to be faithful in the tasks you've been given it may just be planning it may be tending it may be watering it may be protecting but the harvest will come in it's a marriage of our commitment to the work and god's production of the harvest of the crop Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend studying this part of your word. Help me to be faithful and to toil always in the preparation so that I can share these things with my friends here and my co workers, my compatriots, my team members. Father, I thank you for letting me be a part of your church. I thank you for how you have given me the opportunity to teach your scriptures help me to be faithful in doing that help me father to know when and where you want to expand that ministry i pray father that you will look with mercy on our nation you know i heard dr gifford pray about how sodom and gomorrah came and it seems to me i could make a very strong argument that we are like sodom and gomorrah now and yet father There were only four righteous people in Sodom. And there's a lot more righteous people, I think, right now in our nation. Therefore, we're praying not for judgment. I'm praying for mercy and revival. I want you to display your power, Father, in a way that no one can deny it. They'll see your reality. They'll see your love and forgiveness and then personally experience it. I pray these things in the name of your Son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.